Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined in studio by Gavin O'Reilly, former chief executive of independent news and media, son of Sir Anthony O'Reilly, who is now living in Los Angeles with a range of business interests. So Gavin O'Reilly, uh, welcome to Inside Business. You're looking tanned and healthy. What has you back in Ireland? Well, I always love to come back to Ireland as much as I can, but on this occasion, it's uh, Public Relations Institute of Ireland, which is having a uh, big conference tomorrow, and uh, surprisingly, they've asked me to speak. Well, it's not that surprising, really, because you are chairman of Red Flag Consulting, which is in the communications business itself, and has been making a bit of a splash over the past uh, couple of years. Yeah, we've certainly been making a splash. I mean, it's uh, not even five years, and the business is doubling uh, mm. every year. And I should say, founded by Carl Brophy, obviously who worked for you uh, as the communications chief in independent news media and the two well, of you go back a long the, way. I think that was the theory that uh, he worked for me, but I think I worked for him because, um, you know, as I, as I was talking to somebody yesterday, reminded of it, that uh, Carl uh, was a very young, impertinent, uh, 28-year-old mm. uh, wannabe editor down in South Africa, and he came to me with a proposition to uh, launch a newspaper for the emerging South Africa uh, populist uh, uh, paper. Uh, and I suppose he just kept persisting and persisting. And I said, yes. Uh, and I think it was one of the great, great publishing success stories of all time. I mean, within a year and a half, he achieved over a million readers, uh, beating the other our other two papers in the Cape Town market. So quite an achievement. So later on, when you look, was it February 2013, when Carl came to me and said he had this idea about sort of a uh, uh, very direct, frank um, uh, PR and communications company, I thought, what the hell? It couldn't, certainly going to be a hell of a lot of fun with, with, with Carl. Uh, and he, if anyone's going to make a success of it, make some waves, it's Carl. And indeed, that's what's happened. And it's Dublin-based, but it very much has a presence overseas now. Yeah, Dublin is, yeah, Dublin is is obviously where the business uh, originates. It's because many of the executives are uh, from from Dublin, but the vast majority of our business is conducted uh, outside the state, uh, across America, across all of uh, Europe, and now increasing into Asia as well. Yeah, and the reason you're speaking to the PRI is to talk about a coffee campaign that you were involved in, Red Flag, that is, and uh, that won you some awards in New York recently. Yeah, won us two awards at the... Uh, PR News Elite Agency Awards, which was, yeah, real uh, tribute to, to Carl and the team. I mean, they did a spectacular job. 
And, you know, they took uh, a much-loved commodity, coffee, um, which people don't know because I think Red Flag did such a great job, was under threat um, by various World Health Organizations. Apparently, coffee was not good for you. Um, and I think largely because of the efforts of Red Flag, I think now everyone would agree that uh, coffee is almost a superfood. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> the jury might be out on that one. But anyway... Um, just tell us a little bit about Red Flag. How big is it now? What kind of clients do you represent? So the uh, there's probably now uh, about 38 professionals um, in, look, I've got to think about this, seven offices. Um, two of those in the, in, the, in the United States, six offices, sorry, two of those in the United uh, States. Um, our clients are, you know, fast-moving consumer good uh, companies. Um sort of FTSE 100 size companies. Uh, as well. Not all of them. Uh, well, as you probably know from recent court cases, we don't like to uh, name our clients uh, well, too often. The moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, all I'll say is they're, they're big, reputable uh, FTSE 100 and, and uh, you know, mm. uh, even one Dow component uh, company. Right. And as chairman, how involved are you? How much time does it take up? So it's taking an increasing amount of time. Um, and, and I suppose that just really reflects, you know, the way the business is evolving. As I said, it's doubling in, in size every single year. So what was a non-executive role for me has sort of morphed into an executive role. Uh, and I think the business, I mean, I joke that, you know, uh, the business is now of a scale that can afford my uh, expenses, not that they're that great. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm now, it's, it's virtually a full-time job now. All right. Now, Red Flag has been in the news over the last uh, few years because there's been a, a long-running case. I think it dates back to 2014 involving Dennis O'Brien, uh, former share. Well, sorry, a former um, adversary of yours. Perhaps uh, it might be a good way to put it uh, when you were chief executive of INM, and he was he was a large shareholder uh, in independent news and media. And Carbrophy would have worked for uh, INM at that time as well. And he has taken a, a, a rather interesting um, legal case against Red Flag in Ireland, which uh, came to court again last week. And his application to get discovery of certain documents in relation to that case was rejected by the court. Uh, just explain the backdrop to that for us. Well, well, first of all, d just to correct the, the timeline, it was 2015, almost uh, you know two years to, to this week, um, I think it was, that uh, we were first... Uh, um, we first received uh, legal notification where um, Dennis O'Brien, the plaintiff, was uh, seeking what's called an Anton Pillen order. So basically a civilian search and seize against Red Flag um, for information that uh, he felt that, that we had and that he wanted. Uh, obviously, I'm constrained somewhat by what I can say, sure. although, you know, there's Quite a lot been written yeah. about this. About well, it senses around a USB stick, uh, which this, essentially I mean, he says he was sent anonymously. Anonymous USB that uh, subsequently seems to have done a tour of Europe. Uh, but I think the overall point is two years on, um, the plaintiff has gone to court um, and uh, not once, not twice, but three times, uh, the learned judges have, have ruled. Now, you know, as the court process is here, as it is in most countries, mm. you know, the allows for appeals, uh, and yet to be seen whether uh, the plaintiff will attempt to get this before the, sure. uh, the Supreme Court. And this centers around a dossier which he says was compiled by Red Flag on behalf of an unnamed client, which was potentially or could be very damaging to him. 
Well, that's what he alleges, yes. Mm. Mm. So what's the red flag position? Well, the red flag position is that uh, we, uh, you know, in the normal course of our business, we pull together um, research and information on um, lots of issues, lots of people, uh, and it's our absolute right uh, uh, to do so on behalf of our, our clients. And in respect of uh, the plaintiff wishing to or demanding that he had some God-given right to know who our clients is, uh, quite simply, he doesn't. Uh, yeah. And client confidentiality is uh, you know, paramount uh, to us. And I think this is, he's prosecuted this. I mean, you need to ask him why um, and on what basis. And all I can say is, uh, you know, the law has been pretty prescriptive um, in terms of its ruling so far. Okay. Um, it, is, it does still potentially have some legs to run, though, doesn't it? As I said, if 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 the plaintiff can, um, if he can, I suppose, formulate a uh, so, some sort of argument why it needs to go before the learned judges in the Supreme Court, um, yeah, uh, uh, and I think he has three weeks to do that after the uh, last week's ruling has been perfected, which I believe will be this week. So you know, we'll know before Christmas. Uh, what Mr. Ryan wants to do. Yeah. Now, you left i and in, uh, I think it was April 2012, just over, what, five, oh, and, a five and a half years ago, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, and that followed a long and sort of protracted um, standoff, if you like, between Dennis O'Brien as a major shareholder in i and 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 your family. Um, your father uh, had been chief executive of i and and had effectively... Um, well, effectively... Uh, Created the modern day independentism media as yeah. it was, yeah. And you succeeded him as uh, chief executive. Uh, I mean, do you think this court case is a residue of that that dispute? I, you know, I really don't know. Um, I mean, uh, Dennis O'Brien has said that that uh, you know he has some right to know the provenance of information, and if it's from um, his, I can't remember the actual phrase, his number one enemy. I'm not quite sure if I'm that person or if it's if it's somebody else. Um, I, I'm not quite sure why he would continue to prosecute uh, in relation to INM. I mean, certainly the, when I was chief executive of INM, um, his uh, representatives on the board would go out of their way to uh, confirmed to me and the other directors that uh, that uh, Dennis O'Brien did not have any influence whatsoever in in INM um, so you know whether whether this is a holdover I, I don't know but I mean it does seem to to me that uh, you know in relation to independent news and media uh, whether he controls it or whether he doesn't control it um, he, he does appear to have achieved what that which he wanted, which was uh, me out of the picture. Uh, but that's five and a half years ago. So mm. I'm not quite sure why it would uh, linger on. Yeah. What was the reason, um, do you think, for the for the standoff between Dennis O'Brien and your family? What was behind it? I mean, he spent an awful lot of money. He lost an awful lot of money. By his own admission in public, he's, he's, uh, he's lost probably over 500 million euro uh, on, on building that stake in INM. And ultimately... He succeeded. Your father left the business as CEO. You were ultimately, uh, you ultimately resigned. Um, you can give us your take on that, uh, perhaps a, a little later. But what was the genesis of the, of the row, if do, you like, you between know, the two sides? I really sides? don't know. I mean, I, and, and of course, I do want to say, Kieran, I don't want to spend the entire podcast sure. talking about Dennis. But, but I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I, I knew Dennis when he was 
uh, running around Dublin in the in the early nineties, and he cut a swathe in 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 town. I mean, he was uh, you know had a real sense of the possible, and and uh, was doing great 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 things, uh, and he had great great success. Um, and uh, but as to why, you know, after all that success and good fortune, um, it you know there was a, a, I suppose an attempt to be. Uh, Well, I don't know. I mean, there are people that say, does it have something to do with the newspaper coverage? Um, I don't know whether it it does or it doesn't. All I know is that my involvement in in matters editorial was extremely limited um, beyond, you know, setting budgets and and, uh, appointing senior editorial people. I did not write what was in the paper uh, every single day. Um, and I don't think there's any doubting that uh, uh, some of the coverage uh, about Dennis, not just in the Irish Independent, the Sunday Independent, the Evening Herald, but in the Irish Times and the Examiner, all the rest, may not have always been favorable in the in the context of the Moriarty Tribunal and its findings. And um, but I suppose in, in 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 a sort of a bizarre way, Independent was the only public, and by that I mean publicly traded company. Where uh, Dennis might be able to uh, focus his 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 attention, um, he couldn't do it at the Irish Times, obviously owned by a trust. The Examiner was, you know, a small family paper down in in, in Cork, and the State Broadcaster is just that, the State Broadcaster. So he didn't have many options, uh, you know, to to, to focus his uh, train his guns, uh, and uh, you know, he opted, I suppose, for independent. But as for the personal animus, I don't know because, as far as I know. Um, I don't believe that my father ever met Dennis until this much storied meeting that took place in 2009, February 2009. I don't yeah. think they had met prior to that. Right. What dealings did you have with Dennis during that whole standoff? During the, uh, it depends which standoff we're talking about. Dennis came on as a shareholder in 2006. Uh, the alignment, which was which was written about at the time, which is when uh, my father stood down, and when uh, I became CEO, that was three years later in two thousand in nine. Um, there would not have been much interaction. I think there was a lot of public um, uh, sort of uh, sparring. Sparring, you know, that's a very good way to uh, to say. And um, you know, on both sides, there was. Uh, I mean, it was both sides were sort of throwing bricks at one at one another, and you know. In hindsight, if you could do it all over again, might you play it differently? Possibly. But I think after 2009, obviously, we had his quote-unquote representatives on the board. Um, and uh, it's clear that they spoke for him. Um, there were in, the, in the early days when we were trying to deal with a very, very complex financial restructuring uh, in the summer of 2009, yes, I did have some direct uh, interaction, as, as was appropriate, because the... You know, our, our lenders at the time felt it was terribly important that, um, you know, both major shareholders, being my father and Dennis O'Brien, were uh, across the uh, plans for the restructuring. So I did have some dialogue, but for reasons that are only clear to Dennis and, and maybe all his advisors, um, they then, uh, I suppose, sought a different different path than the one that we were going down. Ultimately, at that stage, you know, we resolved the financial restructuring, but you'll recall in the fall of 2009, I mean, I can't remember how many EGMs had to be called uh, over, over various issues. 
Um, uh, so that, I think, was probably the last time I had any dealings with, with Dennis directly. Right, of course. And then uh, Leslie Buckley, who's a very close business associate of Dennis O'Brien's over many years, was he was removed from the board, wasn't he? I mean, it was pretty, uh, pretty unceremonious. And I think he was, uh, well, he wasn't happy with that, as you would imagine. Yeah. And he, and he was a representative of Dennis O'Brien. He was a representative, but of course now he's, you know, it's rather curious the way things evolve. He's now, of course, chairman yeah. of uh, I&M today. Uh, I mean, look, there's, a, I suppose, a degree of schadenfreude in my case. I mean, for years, uh, you know, after 2006, 2007, 2008, I had to listen to nauseating accusations about lack of independence and, you know, cronies on the board and all that sort of stuff in relation to uh, independent newspaper. Um, and all I'd say is, you know, if I look at I&M today, you know, I think it's probably a case of the cat calling the kettle black. Yeah. So what do you make of the latest events at INM where we had Robert Pitt and Leslie Buckley in a very public fallout over, uh, you know, potential deal for News Talk, which is owned by Dennis O'Brien, a radio station. And then we had the, the fact that he made the protected disclosure. And now Robert Pitt has just left the business uh, to pursue other business interests, apparently. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't have any insights. Um, as, as you can imagine, people don't call me up from independent and uh, share the news with me uh, like they might have in the, in, in, in the past. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, minded of Oscar Wilde's, you know, comment, uh, you know, to lose one CEO um, is, uh, you know, regrettable, but to lose two is uh, possibly reckless. I mean, you know, there seem to be a number of CEOs in the company over the last couple of years. Uh, it does seem as though, and this is just, you know, from 5,000 miles away, the governance of the, of the company is a little bit upside down. Um, uh, it, it, I think it clearly proven, and I think they, the company itself, admits that it is not technically compliant with the independence. Um, and the issues around news talk and, you know, pr protective disclosures and all the rest, um, I mean, I'd never seen anything like that. I, I'm surprised. I never met... Uh, Mr. Pitt, but I'm surprised he lasted for as long as he he, he did. Um, uh, and it must have been extremely difficult for him. Uh, and it must be difficult for the board, too, uh, to figure out how the hell they can uh, navigate in a way that is positive to the shareholders that are not Dennis O'Brien and not Dermot Desmond, but the other 50% of the shareholders. And with the benefit of hindsight and without wanting to rerun the whole saga of uh, sort of pre-2012, did Dennis O'Brien, was there some merit in what he said about the way the company was being run at the time in that, you know, you know, maybe there was a bit of cronyism, maybe the board was stuffed with some cronies or maybe there was a bit of nepotism. After all, you you were in the business, you were a senior executive in the business um, that your father uh, effectively, you know, ran and, yeah. and was Look, a major, I'm, I'm major never, shareholder. I'm never going to be able to uh, dispel the charges of nepotism. Um, I have that all my all my life. Um, you know, look, if I felt I wasn't, that I, that I didn't do a a good job and that I wasn't capable, I wouldn't have been in it. I mean, I don't, you know, have enough pride uh, in myself. Uh, I think, you know, empirically you look at, you know, the operating metrics of our business, you look at, you know, the, our peer group, and I'm not saying just in Ireland, but I'm saying uh, worldwide. Um, you know, I think we can be pretty proud um, of our achievements at Independent at that time. Uh, the challenges that we had in Independent weren't about the board, um, weren't about, you know, Dennis's perception of cronyism or his perception of, of corporate governance, which I think now looks somewhat uh, hollow, those comments. 
um, it was that, you know, we had, uh, you know, a, a, a fairly aggressively leveraged company that had always historically been fairly leveraged. Heavily, heavily indebted. Yeah, yeah heavily, heavily indebted. Um, I think 426.8 million at the time, uh, around the time you stood down. Right. But, I mean, you know, three years earlier when I took over as CEO, it was about $750 million. So, I mean, we were going in the right trajectory. And look, debt is not evil. I mean, Dennis O'Brien will tell you debt's not evil. God knows he has enough of it at Digicel. So, I mean, if you want to drive shareholder value, you've got to have the right balance of, uh, you know, debt to equity. And, uh, you know, for the majority of the time we did, our, our challenge in 2009 is our dramas were, I think, uh, you know, aggravated somewhat by the state of the Irish banking uh, system itself. So uh, banks that would have stood with you suddenly found themselves not being in a position to be able to stand with them for their own problems. Um, and, you know, without boring all your, your listeners, but if you go back to 2009, what triggered, apart from the, you know, the impact of the uh, GFC, uh, and the huge falls in, in, in advertising. I mean, over a two-year period, our advertising fell by 50% in Ireland. So that was a fairly, fairly substantial drop. But, I mean, our, our biggest issue is we had a 10-year, 200 million euro bond that just happened to mature in May 2009. And uh, we had a supportive bank group, by and large, but some of the banks, which will remain nameless, um, basically decided that, that uh, we would not be able to refinance the uh, the eurobond and that we would have effectively have to equitize it. So that that sort of triggers all sorts of um, dramas in any public company. And that's what happened. And it was at that time when, you know, you're having falling revenues, falling profits, but we were still hugely profitable. I mean, let's not, let's not lose sight of that. Um, and you have, you know, shareholders... Uh, who were ag aggravating? It was sort of a, a rather messy, messy cocktail. Um, and uh, but I don't, you know, I, I've also said I mean on record, uh, although I haven't talked much about this in the past, but the limited comments I've made on it, I think we could have achieved a different outcome. I think we could have a different company, uh, INM today. I mean, let's let's be honest, INM is but a shadow of itself. Uh, it has no debt. It has cash. It doesn't seem to know what it wants to do with the cash. Perhaps it should return it to its shareholders uh, if it can't find anything to do, do uh, with it. But um, we could have, I think, back in 2009 had a different, uh, different outcome, you know, had the shareholders truly been in alignment um, and had we uh, had a banking, uh, had our banks uh, in the whole uh, agreed a different path than they, they particularly than that they choose to, to, to go by. So, uh, like, in my time, there was never any prospect of us forcing our banks to take a write-down. I mean, that subsequently happened in INM. Obviously, I wasn't chief executive. And obviously, that impacted AIB, which was owned by the taxpayer. I mean, that was a remarkable. I mean, the, the purest capitalists out there would say, brilliant, piece of uh, financial re-engineering. But, I mean, ultimately, it was the Irish taxpayer that, that, uh, that lost out uh, there. So, you know, our, the way we were facing the financial restructuring back in 2009 was, you know, we were trying to keep everybody whole. Um, and we also wanted to conduct our affairs around the board table, which is where it's most appropriate that it gets conducted, and not across the airwaves. Unfortunately, at that stage, if I can call them the other side, they opted uh, to go via the airwaves. Yeah. Do you still have shares in INM yourself personally? No. Right. 
Gone out of it. Okay. Um, and do you think, looking back, that again, with the benefit of hindsight, that um, it might have been doing you a favour by uh, having to resign in April 2012? Because the newspaper industry has been a pretty difficult, it's in a pretty difficult spot, even now, five years on. Um, and I include the Irish Times and that circulations continue to fall, advertise, print advertising continues to fall, and the expected jump in digital revenues hasn't quite emerged and nobody really has figured out how to fully monetize digital, even the big, big players in the US. Well, Google has. Well, well Google has, but I mean, come on, yeah, Google's no, what, what you're a, a saying, disruptor. Which, what, what you're saying is... Traditional the, newspaper traditional operators, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it's... it's um, the market was always going to sort of consolidate, and it, was, and it was shrinking even my time. And we were we were sort of managing decline and trying to put the best uh, um, um, financial results around it. I mean, you know, circulation was not growing every single year, even when I was at Independent. But you know, I always looked at it as being uh, you know there was going to be some consolidation uh, in, in in the marketplace. Um, the market leader, if they stuck to their knitting, you know, was always going to uh, outperform the rest of the market. I mean, that subsequently has not happened here in Ireland. I'm just saying that would have been my posture uh, back in back in 2012. Um, you know, I, I, I yeah, certainly would have been more. I think it's more challenging now. The the rates of decline in circulation are obviously a lot more uh, aggressive than they they have been heretofore. But I think something interesting has happened in the world of journalism, though, and largely led by. Um, you know, the rather um, unusual president that uh, they have in the United States right now because the advent of fake news, as, as it were, um, I think is really creating uh, a need and, importantly, a desire for quality journalism. And, you know, use that phrase that I remember using it back in, you know, 99, 2000, content is king. You know, that was in the context of uh, mm. AOL buying Time Warner. Uh, and of course, every media property in the world um, valuation shut up, and and uh, you know, uh, and so everybody was, me included, was spouting out the wisdom that content is king. But that was content is king on the on the basis of suddenly the valuation of your business is worth five, ten, fifteen times more than it was before. But the value proposition now is, you know, uh, uh, it's more. Uh, operation, if I can say it like that, in, in, in the sense that people are, you know, they are dipping back more and more into newspapers. I mean, you look at stats for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, you know, I'm not saying they are, uh, you know, reversing the declines that they have seen, but uh, they're cer certainly slowing the trend uh, down as more and more people are coming back uh, desperate for good quality journalism. And as I said, content is king. So I think good quality journalism will always be uh, relevant. So, you know, in terms of would I like to still be in this business? Look, I grew up in this business. I love this business. I mean, for six years, I was president of the World Association of Newspapers. I know all the publishers around the world. I know the journeys they've had, good and bad. Uh, there's some fabulous uh, people, fabulous uh, companies, fabulous titles. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting space. And, you know, in respect of digital um, you know, it may be in the less obvious places. I mean, if you look at the digital successes we had at Independent, you know, they weren't typically based off our editorial products. They were based, you know, whether it was our bingo sites or our, you know, iTouch, uh, you know, um, various, various other different uh, um, uh, value creators that, that, that we had. So do I miss it? Sure, I miss it. And there were a lot of great people that I uh, worked with that, that, that I miss. Uh, 
Um, some I still stay in, in touch with, I'm happy to say. Um, but I think I'm happier now uh, doing what I'm doing in, 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 in Los Angeles. And what newspapers do you read, can I ask? So I, I read... <laughs> I don't read the Irish Independent anymore. <laughs> really? Um, I look at the Irish Times uh, now and again, except you keep wanting to get money from me, which I suppose... Uh, <laughs> makes <laughs> That's a, fair enough. Makes a mockery of what I just said. Um, I look at the LA Times, which is... Uh, um, just because I, li I live there... Um, uh, I like the Wall Street uh, uh, Journal. And then I sort of uh, dip in, um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a magazine called The Week um, and The Economist. So that's sort of my reading uh, every, every week. But am I as religious on my daily read of the, of the newspaper as I used to be? No, obviously, you know, I had to be before. I don't have to be uh, now in that context. And, and, and obviously being in the communications business like Red Flag, I'm somewhat spoiled because the team puts together some pretty clippings and stuff awesome like that. Uh, yeah, clippings and, and perspectives on what's going on in the world. Yeah, sure. Okay. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Gavin O'Reilly about uh, life growing up in the O'Reilly household and about his life now in Los Angeles. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. I'm joined in studio by Gavin O'Reilly, the former chief executive of independent news and media and the son of Sir Anthony O'Reilly. I should ask you about that. What was it like growing up as the son of Sir Anthony O'Reilly? Because he was um, a very famous rugby player, uh, both for Ireland and, and with the Lions. He had a very storied uh, career and then a hugely successful businessman. Uh, I think the first non-family chief executive of the Heinz Group in America and then obviously uh, independent news media, Waterford Crystal and so on, which everybody knows about uh, in, in the Irish context. So I think as my 10-year-old son would say, it was awesome. He's, uh, he's obviously living in America, so he's picked up, uh, uh, you know, the local mixing. Mm. But, but what's, your, what's your first memory? My first memory is in our house in Pittsburgh, um, him arriving back, uh, and he was being driven, and the guy, the driver that brought in the bags, Mike, I always remember Mike, uh, would carry in all his briefcases. And he had those brown leather, like the airline pilot's uh, uh, bags, and he had one for each company that he was involved with. So he had about 10 of these bags. So you'd, you'd see the bags, and there'd be a great expectation that a father would follow immediately afterwards. But he, of course, was still sitting in the car on the phone to somebody. Um, so uh, that's my first memory, all his, all his briefcases. Right, OK. And was there ever a present uh, for little Gavin in any of these briefcases? Uh, I don't think he viewed that was his role. I think he relied on um, my mother uh, to provide uh, the gifts. So if she went away with him, yes, she always brought back six little gifts for the kids. Right. This is your mother, uh, Susan, uh, yeah. who was Australian. Was Australian, yeah. And uh, six children uh, in six the children. family, and you were, of course, one of triplets. Yeah, six children. So uh, it makes my mother even more remarkable that she had six children in four years because obviously the triplets came last. Um, and, you know, that was in the early 60s. 
in Dublin, and she was from, you know, sunny Australia, and she moved the other side of the world to, to, to Dublin. And, uh, you know, my father was still playing rugby and was trying to build his career at Bordvania first, and then obviously the sugar company. So my poor mother was, uh, you know, tending to six kids in Mount Marion in, in Dublin. <laughs> okay. So when did you move to America? So we moved to America 1971. 1971. Uh, by boat, I believe. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. Uh, yes, because I always, yes, we, we did go by boat, like the thousands of other Irish before us, but it was, I must confess, the Queen Elizabeth II. The QE2. So, the QE2. <laughs> um, I do remember that trip. That was a fairly epic, uh, epic trick, yeah. How long did that take? That must have been a few days, I guess. Five days? Five days. Five days. And you know what's interesting? I, I um, well, it's interesting to me. It might not be interesting to your listeners. Um, I can remember coming into New York Harbor, I can't remember passing the Statue of Liberty, but I was on on deck. But they were building the World Trade Centers, um, uh, the two towers, and there were cranes on them. And, of course, coming in on a boat and seeing the end of Manhattan. And 30 years later, almost to the day, um, I was in New York on September 11th. Uh, tragically, to watch those towers uh, fall fall down. So, but I so can remember that was my first vision of America was the twin towers. Wow! And that was the whole family. Everybody packed yeah, up on the QE two. Whole family and my uh, my grandparents, my father's mother uh, and his father, uh, and two dogs. Two dogs. Yeah, I think that was the whole whole crew. Right. Okay. And how long in America? How long did we stay? Well, we. I lived on and off in America all my life, but um, I stayed there um, until we stayed about ten years. So we did all our primary schooling in uh, in Ireland, and then uh, we, uh, for reasons that are only clear to my parents, they decided that um, we should go off to back to Europe to go to school. And we used to come to Ireland every summer for three months every summer, which was spectacular. But there was never any question of school. That was, you know, Ireland was a place where you had loads of fun, uh, eating tato and uh, Cadbury dairy milk and, and all the rest, not suddenly going to school. Uh, but we suddenly announced that we were going to school. So my brother Tony and I ended up going to a school in England called Harrow, made famous because that's where Winston Churchill went. Um, and... Uh, Let's just say we didn't last, uh, we didn't fit in as well uh, as uh, we'd like. Um, uh, and then we both came to uh, Ireland a year later and went to Clongos. Okay. Well, your father had a very famous rugby career. I mean, did you play rugby yourself? I think because he had a very famous rugby career, I did not. I was a better smoker and drinker than I was a rugby player. <laughs> but my two brothers, though, they were they were both on the Senior Cup team at, at, at Clongos. Tony Jr. and Cameron. Yeah. Um, so what was it like, I mean, having a, having a father who was obviously a very successful chief executive and businessman and investor, I guess, um, uh, later on. What was it like? I mean, was there pressure on you um, to sort of follow in his footsteps? Did you feel any pressure? No, I, no, I don't think pressure. I mean, I think, look, you're, looking back, you think, wow, how privileged you were. I mean, you'd be, you'd be whether it was Castle Martin, which was our house down in Kildare or in America, You'd suddenly come down for for dinner, and we were always included in in you know in any events if there were people uh, uh, coming to stay, and you know you'd be you know uh, sitting there with George Bush or the elder, I should say, um, or Henry Kissinger, or I mean those are in the early in the in the, in the early years, uh, and then you know as I went through school and then I got into business myself, you know the opportunity to meet um, business leaders 
on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, I mean, that was a great opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, my, my father's a very inclusive um, person, um, and he likes to bring people together. Um, and, um, you know, he's not, he likes to share, I suppose, the experiences and introduce. And he was particularly proud to... Uh, and this isn't me trying to wrap it in green, but I, mean, I think you should know from his efforts in the Ireland Fund to his own investment philosophy in Ireland. I mean, he could not have been more proud to be Irish and uh, eager to showcase Ireland to uh, Americans. So, I mean, he was sort of almost like a one-man um, idea. He brought in so many uh, uh, people. Yeah. Was he tough on you, though, as kids? And was the pressure uh, to succeed in school and no. uh, and then in business? No, I mean he, you know, he was hugely busy. So um, you know, I, I I don't think he'd mind me saying. I think his children became more interesting when we could, you know, string together a coherent sentence and uh, maybe contribute to the conversation at a dinner table. Uh, snivelly little kids uh, running around making noise. Um, I'm sure it didn't fill him with glee. Um, and he travelled so much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he literally. I mean, I remember in the 70s when we were living in Pittsburgh, I'd say every weekend he was on the EI-104 from New York back to, to Dublin. Because in those days, it was Fitzwilton. It was the early days of Independent. It was, you know, and so many of the other investments that he had in, 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 in Ireland. Whilst at the same time, you know, running a Fortune 500 company uh, like the Heinz Company. Yeah. I mean, you ultimately ended up in independent news and media. Uh, when did you make that decision that that's what you wanted to do with your career? So I wanted to, so in 91, 92, so I had a kind of a, uh, I didn't have the most obvious academic route. So when I left uh, Clongas, I went to London to work in an um, ad agency that was supposed to last two months. I was supposed to be pouring coffee. And, and I was the fabled client's son. Um, the only problem is I was there for two weeks and the client, Heinz, fired the agency. So even though I wasn't getting paid and all my job was to do was to pour coffee, my position was looking somewhat precarious. Uh, and I, uh, but I remember saying to the managing director at the time, um, I said, look, let me stay on, let me help on new business. Anyhow, two and a half years later, I'm still there. And I kept deferring my university. And then I went to university in Washington at Georgetown University. And uh, I was there for a year. And then a friend of mine who I knew from London said, what the hell are you doing at university? You know, why don't you come to Hong Kong and be a stockbroker? And that made no sense whatsoever. So, of course, I jumped at the chance um, and uh, did that for a couple of years, then went back to Georgetown and finished it. So I, I finished all of that in, in beginning of 92. Uh, and I was not sure exactly what I wanted to do. Did I want to get back into financial services because that would have been the most recent thing I did? Did I want to get back into advertising? And I had my own uh, network. And um, I went to uh, Australia and New Zealand traveling with my father uh, on that trip. And I spent, I suppose, six weeks on that. I mean, getting starting in Ireland and eventually getting back to Ireland was about six weeks. And, um, you know, during that time, you know, uh, I was hearing a lot about independent and, uh, and, you know, obviously this is before email and uh, we were still dealing with, you know, photosynthetic uh, faxes and things like that. But, you know, uh, and uh, I suppose my father would just share stuff with me about it and it looked really interesting. And what I was particularly interested in actually was the cable business. Um, that we had with uh, Liberty 
but now it's Liberty Liberty Media. Princess Holdings. Princess Holdings, yeah. as it was, yeah. And then it became Chorus, and, and now I'm not quite sure. Virgin Media. Is. Virgin Media, yeah. And I wanted to do that, and I remember my father joking with me, saying, oh, that's far too valuable for you to be. If you want to, if you want to get involved in independent, you've got to earn your spurs. So there was a little, and little being the opportune word, a division um, called the Independent Directory. Um, kind which, of like a, a Golden Pages, uh, if you well, like. You're very it? kind to say that. Um, slim down. Yes, slim down, slim down by virtue that we didn't have as many ads as the uh, Golden Pages. But yeah, it was a, it was a competitor, pretender to the uh, Golden Pages. Um, I suppose for for a generation, it was very important because it had maps and it had coupons, uh, which were. Uh, two features that the Golden Pages did not have. Anyhow, I ran that, and and you know we had some good fortune uh, there, and that sort of got me into independent. And look, I said before, you know, um, you know, I probably managed to, to get on the express elevator. No, no, no question uh, about that. But um, I don't think there uh, people that have worked with me. Um, I don't think there would be too many people that. Uh, would argue uh, about my, they may argue about my capabilities or my judgment, but they certainly won't uh, argue about my commitment for the job, my work ethic. Um, and yeah, so I was very fortunate to get the opportunities at, at Independent um, that I did. Um, at, but, you know, it, it, it played its toll, um, you know, in relation to my personal life. I mean, I worked incredible hours. I traveled, uh, you know, like 300 days a year, um, you know. So uh, I suppose that was the, the the judgment that I made that it was important enough that I did it, um, and uh, and I enjoyed the aspect that aspect of the of, of of the job and the opportunities, and you know, forging new markets as we did in India, Indonesia, helping South Africa uh, develop new products in South Africa. So it was a it was a it was a great period, but it wasn't. I mean, I wasn't sort of sitting around. Twiddling my thumbs. I don't think there's any executive yeah. that you'll find. I, 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 I don't even think the O'Brien representative directors would, would say that I was twiddling around. I mean, I may say other things that may not be entirely true, but they, I don't think they would say that I was, uh, you know, just a journeyman. I certainly wasn't. Yeah. The Independent newspaper in London, of course, was one of the stable of titles uh, that you owned during your time uh, in charge at, at IM. And I understand there's a, a curious story involving Harvey Weinstein, who's uh, made the headlines of late for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and an article that was uh, being uh, written by one of the female journalists at The Independent. Yeah, but it's not it's not a story that when you mentioned female journalists, it's not a story I think that is going to go the way that people think it's going to go. So, I mean, simple enough story. Uh, uh, 2008, sort of after, so it must have been May or June 2008, and I was in of all places, Mexico City, um, meeting Carlos Slim, who was a shareholder of independent news and media. He's you know, was, the Mexican uh, telecoms uh, billionaire. Billionaire, yeah. And an arrival of Dennis O'Brien's in the Caribbean, I believe. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I believe so. Um, or Central uh, America. C- C- yeah, I think yeah. more Central America. Um, anyway, I was in, in Mexico City, um, and suddenly my phone starts uh, ringing. And, uh, you know, this is nearly 10 years ago. And, you know, don't have smartphones, or the phones might have been smart, but they're not as smart as they are now. So it didn't necessarily say who it was, unknown number. I get it. And, um, I mean, I won't name all the personalities, but over the next oh, hour. Do, oh, do. no, I, no, 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 because I don't need, um, <laughs> um, let's say one was Philip Green. 
Um, okay. One was Richard Desmond. Uh, another one was a very high-profile PR guy in, in, in London. And one was Harvey Weinstein. Uh, and and the Independent in, in, in London was doing an article about Harvey Weinstein. I didn't know anything about this, but all these people were calling. And they were asking, uh, not asking, they were yelling me on the phone, uh, uh, telling me to kill this story. Um, hard to kill a story, uh, one, if you're not involved with it, and two, you didn't even know it was, it was being run. Uh, so uh, eventually, because all these people were, were calling and, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, is this, you know, what, what is going on? I have to get some perspective here. Um, I call Simon Kellner, who rightly tells me to F off. It's none of my so he business. was the editor. He was the editor of the Simon. time. And, and he rightly told me to F off. And told me to tell these people that, uh, that we're calling if they call back, tell them to F off uh, as, as, as well. So um, I, I didn't need to because the next call I got was from Harvey Weinstein. Um, and I've never met Harvey Weinstein, never talked to him before. But he started yelling down the phone at me, um, you know, uh, saying that he had done, done an uh, interview with a journalist, journalist who I didn't even know who the journalist was, and uh, all sorts of expletives, and that, uh, you know, he was going to sue me, he was going to sue the papers, you know, unless the story gets uh, canceled. Anyway, I did what many uh, uh, brave executives independent have done when it comes to matters editorial. We did nothing. Um, and I went off and did my, my whatever I was doing in, in, in Mexico City, um, and eventually I flew back to London, and uh, two days later there was a bouquet of white flowers, I can't remember, are they lilies or roses, from Harvey Weinstein to thank me for the article uh, because apparently the article had turned out to be a really positive article about Harvey <laughs> Weinstein, who I think was going through some financial difficulties or, you know, and he obviously felt that I had um, intervened in some positive way, which of course I hadn't. Yeah, okay. Well, he's going through some difficulties of an altogether different colour uh, right, right now. Absolutely. Let's just talk about uh, post-INM. You went and you were leading the talent agency, which was uh, a company that was representing a lot of uh, entertainers. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and uh, event- yeah, later so, it was sold. Yeah, so it uh, was it was a uh, music agency called The Agency Group. It was the lo- largest live music agency in the world. So we represented about 2,500 artists, ranging from... Guns N' Roses to Dolly Parton to Macklemore to, I mean, it was a wonderful uh, collection of, of, of artists. And it was started um, in England uh, uh, by a guy called Neil Warnock, who had, you know, his much storied, wonderful guy who, who's, uh, you know, worked with NEMS, which was the Beatles management company. So he's been, you know, part of the rock and roll scene. In, in, in the UK, and he built this little agency out of Islington in London and took it to uh, America. And, you know, he's still very active even to this day. He's, he must be, what, I'm getting older, so it's not that old. He must be 71 or 72 now. And uh, he's still booking bands and booking shows. Um, and I think he was making a judge. I got to know him through somebody else. And I think, you know, I was obviously trying to figure out what my next gig was. I think he was sort of saying, you know, I find it more interesting doing what I'm best at rather than being a CEO. And the business was of a scale and complexity that, uh, that look, the timing just worked. So I got involved in the business. It was great business. Um, a lot of fun, a lot of really interesting people uh, in it. Um about half our business was in the United States. Um, but I think what was happening in the industry or, or is happening in the industry, the 
big, big talent agencies which are doing film and TV and books and, and stuff like that. They're obviously trying to get into music in a, in a, in a big way. And several of them are private equity backed. Um, and, you know, you kind of look at the economics of them, you're wondering how are they able to pay the prices that they are for the agencies that they bought. So I looked at it and I said, well, you know, we need to, because we were just more or less exclusively music, we either need to miraculously get into film and TV and take on guys who've been doing this for 90, 100 years, um, or we need to exit stage left. Um, so that's really why I moved to America back in uh, late 2014, which was, and I think I knew the answer before I got there. I, you know, could I, could I put together, um, you know, a essentially set up live TV uh, and uh, movie uh, agency, or sell, uh, or sell. And uh, I met all sorts of bizarre people, and L.A. has its fair share. Uh, who promised the sun, moon, and stars. And I made a, a judgment uh, pretty fast that the mm. best route was to sell. And I genuinely thought that the process would take a couple of years, you know, schmoozing and uh, trying to find the right buyer. And uh, a company called United Talent uh, came along. They're the third largest. Um, they didn't really have a music division. Um, but, you know, they do, you know, the uh, Angelina, Jolie, and Brad Pitt, and, you know, all those... Uh, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, all those sort of uh, A celebs. Um, and then they wanted a music uh, uh, music division. So they were able to buy us Lock, Stock, and Barrel. So uh, it was a great deal for our shareholders, the shareholders that I was rep- representing. Um, and then I think, you know, having, you know, got my residency back in America, my kids are at school, um, the weather certainly is a tad better in uh Los Angeles than it is perhaps in, in, in Dublin. Um, you know, my wife and I decided, you know, let's let's take a chance in this great country yeah. of, of America. Um, so that's... Can I just ask you about that, actually? Because uh, I think I'm right in saying you've Irish and Australian citizenship. You're obviously living in the U.S. at the minute. You went to college there, uh, uh, you know, and you, as you said yourself, you've uh, traveled quite a bit. And um, in terms of your business interests, you've been in many, many countries. You've had um, business units in many countries, etc. Do you see yourself as Irish or are you in some sort of uh, citizenship limbo, uh, as it were? Do you see yourself as a bit of a global citizen? Well, I think to call myself a global citizen sounds a bit pompous. Do I see myself as Irish? Yeah, I do. Um, but I think I have to persuade people that I'm Irish because they listen to my accent and say, oh, really? Um, look at this. I look at RT.ie and the Irish Times uh, quite a lot. Uh, you know, look, I can't take away the fact that Ireland has been such an, a hugely, hugely important part of my life. Um, I have a daughter that lives here is at UCD. Uh, my other daughter um, has moved to, to, to L.A., um, you know, so I still have very, very obvious connections here. I've got, you know, many, many friends that I that I stay in, uh, in touch with. Um, I, I think if you meet my American friends, you know, they would they would uh, because maybe their ear doesn't uh, allow them to make a judgment of whether you've got an Irish accent. They all think I have an Irish accent, which is hilarious. Um, and they, I think, would. You know, they will call me up if they're going to Ireland. They want advice because I'm their resident expert on Ireland, as far as they're concerned. So, uh, yeah, I'm quite proud to to, to be Irish and and I certainly fly the flag as high as I can. Um, I'm involved with the Ireland funds, um, which is, you know, uh, I think a truly great charity that has truly 
stood the test of time. Um, it's 40 years now. I think it's raised over half a billion dollars for... For causes north and south. North and south, yeah. Uh, on both sides of the, well, the divide that hopefully is not as much of a divide as it used to be, and I think largely because of mm. uh, the work of the Ireland. And are you, are you involved, still involved in Drummond? I am. The hotel? I yeah. am. I am. In fact, I'm here next week for uh, a board meeting. Okay. Um, what about your dad? How is he? He's great. Um, he had uh, he had some back surgery. I mean, here's my advice to uh, anybody listening: if somebody says, "Oh, get your, you know, your your uh, discs fused," don't. There's always going to be a doctor out there that says they can do wonders. Uh, so he's he's gone through the wars a little bit. On he's had three bouts of uh, back back surgery. But I spoke to him at the weekend. He's six foot two, and the importance of saying he's six foot two is. Uh, I said, how are you? He said, well, I'm able to stretch now, and he's back to his six foot two. So, um, yeah, he lives most of the time in France, and, and uh, you know, obviously he's gone through Thanks. some pretty extraordinary yeah. uh, uh, times. Um, uh, but I think happily he's sort of moved on to the, uh, the next phase of his life. It must have been tough for him, though, you know, a pretty a pretty public uh, process. and Well, it didn't need to be, but it, you know, Certain bank chose to, to go that route. And, that bank being know, AIB? I believe so, yeah. And uh, Castle Martin, the former family home, which you mentioned yep. earlier, that was put up for sale. Now uh, owned by John Malone. John Malone. So, I mean, a great that, that I mean, there's somebody who's going to, you know, keep it in uh, up to scratch, that's for sure. Yeah. And when you look back, um, has his legacy been tainted somewhat by all of that? Or what do you think his legacy will be? No, I don't think, um, I don't think so. Um you know, it's amazing people come up to me all the time uh, and say, you know, where's your father? And, and obviously my father's been sort of a bit camera shy as of late. I mean, apart from the back problems that he had, um, happily that are behind him, you know, he doesn't, he's living in France, he doesn't doesn't come to Ireland uh, uh, that much. Um, and some people feel that he's sort of hiding away. Well, not hiding away, it's just the interests that he had here in Ireland he no longer uh, has uh, from a business a business perspective. So when he comes back, he's coming back for friends and he's doing so in a private capacity. But people are saying, oh, wish you could see them. And, you know, they, they, I, so I think they think that he's sort of skulking and hiding away. Um, it's, uh, and, and they're the ones that are saying, look, here's a guy that is, you know, and, and look, uh, for half of the people listening to this podcast, um, you know, they'll they'll remember Tony O'Reilly of old. I mean, who you know was the guy that sort of put largely put Ireland helped put Ireland on the map. Um, you know, during the late fifties, sixties, seventies, we'll remember his sports career. Uh, you know, and he's still got two world records that are still uh, standing, as as his grandson, my son, reminds me about because um, he's very proud of that. Um, and, you know, you, you go to, well, I suppose the easy way, when I, if I talk about my 10-year-old son, who's now this little American kid, um, and he goes to the supermarket with me. And so he's very excited when he walks down one of the, the aisles and he can see the ketchup, which is what granddad made. Now, I don't think granddad was ever actually in the kitchen. And then we go down to the dairy area and Kerrygold, which is truly one of the great success stories. And I don't know how much it gets written about, but Ornua and, and what they're doing uh, with Kerrygold in America is amazing now because uh, I think it's like the fourth largest selling butter now in, in, in America. So it's he can go... selling premium butter in Germany. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and it's going that way in America. Um, 
So, I mean, they're, they're doing a fabulous job of whatever they're doing there. But my, my son is able to walk by and say, oh, and there is. So he's looking at all these different uh, uh, sort of windows on is his grand the Irish Independent for some There isn't uh, a copy of the Irish, uh, Irish Independent, although I think my son does remember that I worked there, so he knew that. And I think he does, he knows there's a bit of Waterford, Wedgwood, or Waterford Glass and Wedgwood uh, around that place. But I mean, these are sort of, you know, um, there's enough there in any one of those for uh, somebody's career. And for him to have done all of that in a 50-year career and create the Ireland fund, um, I think is, you know, his his legacy is assured. So what's next for Gavin O'Reilly? Um, what's next? Um, well, I'm going to be busily working on, on, on Red Flag. Uh, I mean, that's just going so phenomenally well, and it's just with a fabulous group of people uh, that I really, really respect. A lot of... Um, a lot of former colleagues from uh, Independent there as, as well. We, we call it continuity I&M um, in, in many ways internally. Um, so it's uh, – that's going to keep me really busy with that. And, and, you know, I've got some other uh, interests in VR and uh, some new technology stuff in, in, in Los Angeles just because, you know, you hear about the opportunities. And uh, so I'm chairman of a VR company there that, uh, you know, I think is – does some pretty impressive stuff. This is We Immersive. Yeah. Right, okay. And you're also involved as a director of Bayard Capital? Yeah. Right, okay. Um, and any interests, any business interests in Ireland or anything you'd like to do here? Do you see yourself settling back well, here eventually? No, I don't think, you know, I think uh, the epicenter of my world now is, you know, from a home base is, is the United States. Unless Mr. Trump decides to kick me out, which goes... <laughs> So I'm not giving up my Irish passport, if that's what you mean. Right, okay. Gavin O'Reilly, thank you for joining us. That's it for this week from Inside Business. Uh, my thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced the show, and JJ Vernon, as sound engineer. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 